Welcome everyone to the Two Tongues Podcast. Consider this your invitation to join Kyle and Chris on a journey through our minds. Where we explore the questions that have fascinated us for as long as we can remember. Could anarchy actually work? Does God exist? And just how did the cosmos get here anyway? Let me be the Virgil to your Dante, the Sacagawea to your Lewis and Clark. Let's take the guided tour through the dark chambers of our unconscious, seeking answers to the most important and unsettled questions of our shared existence. Ready or not, here we go. Here we go indeed. Welcome back, everyone, to the Two Tongues Podcast. Just a single tongue today, bringing some interesting shit to you, as per usual. What are we doing today? Well, last week, last week, I decided to do an episode called Young's Greatest Pupil and talked about Eric Neumann. And I also told you guys before that I stumbled across another of Young's pupils, so now I guess what I'm doing is like a celebrity death match of depth psychology, something like that, because uh, Young's Greatest Pupil Part 2 is what we're doing today, and it ain't Neumann this time. It's uh, Mary Louise von Franz, so we're going to talk about her. Um, I told you a little bit about her before, but let me just give you a little bit of a background. Uh, Marie-Louise von Franz, so she was born in 1915 and she died in 1998, so obviously a lot younger than Carl Jung, as you would expect, because she was his pupil. Um, She was a Swiss-German philologist, okay, so what that means is she was a language expert, so that was her field, studying ancient languages. That's going to turn out to come in handy for Carl Jung later, um, but I get ahead of myself. So... Von Franz had a deep interest in ancient languages and history. She had an encounter with Carl Jung when she was 18 and was introduced to the idea of the unconscious for the first time. And that made a huge, huge impression on her. Basically changed the course of her life. Immediately after meeting Jung, she started going to his lectures, okay, in order to better understand the reality of and, and the relationship between consciousness and unconsciousness. And she saw that as an outer world and an inner world. And I think that's fair. I mean, that's how we experience our lives. We have a, we have a subjective reality. That's an inner world. That what, th- what things seem like to us and our experiences. And then what those experiences are of in the outer world, the material world around us, you know, the objects and the people outside of us. And so we kind of exist in this in-between place where we're partly in in an inner world and partly in an outer world. And Jung gave her a psychological explanation for that when he brought up the idea of the unconscious. So that was kind of the trigger for her. And she, she got her doctorate in philology. Um... And began reading and translating a library of ancient texts. A lot of these were alchemical texts, you know, like from the Middle Ages. But also works of um, mythology, classical mythology, ancient ancient, uh, religion, and folk and fairy tales. 
So she was getting into the the Greek and Latin and everything else um, and translating those um, into English or German or whatever it was she was speaking, probably German. Turns out, though, that her work on alchemy, translating all these ancient, you know, works from the Middle Ages, mostly from Latin and, and some of that, um, she translated them for Young. And that's interesting because they were working together, you know, um, towards the very end of Young's career and probably, you know, the, the beginning or towards the middle of von Franz's career. And Young relied on her heavily for the translations of those al alchemical texts that became the core of his later, more mystical works. You know, his exploration of transformation, some of the stuff we've been reading in the Red Book, you know, with our Gandalf the Red episodes, that kind of stuff. And over the course of her career, von Franz's interests came to focus on the psychological symbolism in fairy tales. And that's really interesting. It's an idea that occurred to me also. Like if you can listen to somebody like Jordan Peterson do his biblical lectures and give these engaging, powerful, psychological interpretations of biblical stories, why couldn't you do that with fairy tales? And there's so much more material out there. And people, people say, scholars will say, that fairy tales really are the closest stories to understanding the origins of religion because these are the stories that predated our religious stories. These are the stories that, you know, villages uh, will tell, you know, like parents and grandparents tell their children and, and you know, the other, and it's, it becomes a cultural thread through the society. Um, the same way, you know, like everybody in the Western world knows row, row, row your boat. And we all know, uh, you know, the, the, the various Disney, Disney movies and so forth. It's a part of our cultural heritage. And there's little gems in there. And understanding fairy tales from a psychological perspective shines a light through those stories and helps you to see not just the moral of the story, because there usually is one, but what the images in the story actually mean. Now, von Franz understood them to be, like dreams, a projection of psychological forces and instincts, which could be decoded from those fantasy images. And she published prolifically. She wrote a ton. Her masterwork, which I'm reading from today, is called Archetypal Symbols and Fairy Tales. Exactly the idea, um, you know, of, of again, of a Petersonian exploration of the Bible. She's doing it as an explora exploration of fairy tales. She also wrote, just to give you a couple of these titles, Archetypal Dimensions of the Psyche, On Dreams and Death, and Psyche and Matter. To name only a few. And I haven't read those yet, but goddamn, they sound interesting. All right, so von Franz makes the same distinction that the great scholar of religion, Merce Eliade, made between the sacred and profane components of human experience. You know, we all imagine that there's these two elements to our lives there's a sacred and there's a profane. Most things are profane. They're ordinary. They're normal. There's nothing mysterious about them. We understand them. We can manipulate our reality to a fair degree. Most things are like that. Profane, ordinary, normal. But then there's parts of our lives that aren't. 
parts of our lives that are sacred, parts of our lives that hold feelings and evoke emotions and pull up, pull us here and there in ways that are deep, deep down that we don't understand, you know? Um, but unlike Iliade, she takes the hard kind of Jungian angle that the sacred and profane, or the magical and profane as she prefers, directly parallels the conscious and unconscious elements of our psyche. So the sacred and the profane is like the unconscious and the conscious. That's, that's the equivalency. To von Franz, the outer world is a projection, in certain respects, of the psyche. And those inner forces that cannot be made conscious linger behind the veil like ghosts or gods. Or fairies, right? We're telling fairy tales. The blending of the two is the world of myth, of dreams, and of fairy tale, but also the world of the here and now. And that's the paradoxical part. The world of human experience also. Myths and dreams reveal the magic and mystery of our being. Those parts of us that remain forever obscured, but exist nonetheless unconsciously. Now Jung's other great pupil, Neumann, explained that the images which come from the unconscious allow us to piece together an understanding of those things that are beyond understanding. The web of associations that flesh out the meaning of the unknown appear in our dreams and myths, but as we will see in our fairy tales as well. So I think that's a pretty good opening to von Franz. And that brings us to the first segment, which I'm going to call The Indefinite Place. And I'm actually going to open this with, it's a little bit out of character for me to open with a quote that's not in chronological order, but I'm going to. The first one goes like this. The roots of the idea of a distant magical realm spring from a widespread primitive belief that the soul leaves the body in sleep and an awakening returns back to the body. A similar concept is found in the artificially induced states of ecstasy in shamans and medicine men. While one part of the personality remains in unconsciousness, the other part travels to distant realms. All right, so there's a whole bunch here, but this is what I want to point out. We have this understanding, and I think it comes from partly from Plato, partly from Descartes, and partly from the Judeo-Christian tradition, the idea that there's a difference between body and soul, between body and spirit, between body and psyche. And the world of the psyche, the world of the spirit, is sort of understood to us to be different from the world we live in, you know? And if you put your mind, if you try to put your mind frame into that of a, a, prim a primitive person, a tribal, you know, nature-worshipping person from the, from the distant past, you have less distinction between the magical realm and the, and the physical realm, the ordinary realm. There's a little bit of a blending that's happening. And it, you, you can understand that because there's lots of things you don't understand. You know, if you go back way back into history, there was a lot more we didn't understand. There's a lot more mystery there, a lot more fear there because we fear the things we don't understand. So we imagine that there are powers and dangers lurking in, in all these areas that we don't understand. And falling asleep and waking up 
becoming unconscious, let's say, getting knocked out, and then being revived, or dying. Now, these are all things that would have been, you can imagine, baffling to our ancestors. Like, what is happening? Because you can see somebody lose consciousness forever, and their body decomposes, and they disappear. So what in the hell? Their body's still there, but something's changed. Something very important. The most important thing has changed. So how can that have left the body unless it's something separate from the body? You know, it makes perfect sense when you think about it like that. And then there's an equivalency with falling asleep or becoming unconscious for one reason. You can imagine somebody shaking you, talking to you, trying to wake you up, and you don't wake up. And that's scary. Like, is this person alive? You know, what the heck? And then when they wake up, it's like they're just immediately conscious again, like picked up right where they left off when they fell asleep. And there's a gap. And you're like, well, where were you during that gap? And people will tell you, well, I was having a dream. And I was in this magical place. And I did this and that. And it was crazy. You wouldn't believe it. And that's how our dreams seem. Like while we were asleep, when our body was laying there inert on the bed, that our soul left the body and went and did some crazy adventure and came back. And that's how our dreams seem. So there's this idea that there's a magical realm, like a realm of dreams, a realm of spirits, a realm where only the spirits can go when you're asleep or when you're dead. And that's associated with the real world, the here and now, the world of the living. But it's not clear how those two worlds associate with one another. You know, it's not clear. But the ancient people believed those two realms were much, much closer. You know, they believed that nature was filled with spirits. That the rivers and the sky and, and the trees and the mountains were alive in a sense. And observed you just like you're observing them. That's what I mean. And then I think it's interesting because in this opening bit... We talk about death and we talk about sleeping, and that's all very fine and good. But then we start talking about, well, what von Franz calls artificially induced states of ecstasy. And she refers to shaman and medicine men. So what she means here is the types of experiences that tribal people and their nature religions have that are something like a ritual. Right? And usually they in, involve the use of natural materials. So, may, so maybe it's smoke, fire, water, maybe it's tobacco, maybe it's psychoactive drugs like magic mushrooms or marijuana or, or something like that. Ergot, you know. In ancient Greece it was, uh, well there's rumors that the temple of um, Apollo at Delphi, that the priestess was in the cave where she was breathing these noxious chemicals from that were creeping up into the cave from deep, deep underground, and she would get totally blitzed that way and then come out talking craziness. And you know, this is what we're talking about. We're talking about when she says artificially induced, you know, I don't want to pigeonhole this by saying psychedelic drugs, but by and large, that's what we're talking about. It's also something that um that can be achieved through other means, through sensory deprivation, sleep deprivation, deprivation of food, starvation. These sorts of things can also induce similar experiences, but they're more dangerous, generally. They take a lot longer, they take a lot more discipline, and they're less predictable. So the moment human beings found that they could take some sort of psychoactive plants and, and consume them and have the same type of spirit journey that they have when they're sleeping, 
or when they die, they immediately decided that there was value in that. Um, Value for healing the sick, value for learning the future, all sorts of value that could be had by creating one of these experiences, like the ones you have when you're sleeping. And what's important is that the personality remains in this magic world, in this unconscious world, and that's the state you're in when you're sleeping. That's the state you're in when you're dead, right? You're no longer conscious. Uh, There's a part of your personality that's there during these out-of-body experiences, during these spiritual journeys and spirit quests, like the Native Americans will say. And usually, in most circumstances, you come back to the body, and it's as though you're in two places at once. You know, you're in your body, or maybe you are your body, but you're also this other thing in this other place doing this crazy thing, you know, whatever it is, a dream or a mystic quest or whatever it is that you're doing there. And I think the important thing is that you see there's really reasonable reasons for imagining that there's a spirit realm that that parallels the, the physical realm somehow. And it's not a silly thing. It's a perfectly rational thing for someone to think observing sleeping and death and psychedelic experience. It's also important to understand that this magic realm of the gods and the spirits is associated with the unconscious. That's really key here. And that brings us to the first fairy tale that von Franz wants to tell us. It's a Chinese fairy tale called Help in Need. Now, this fairy tale surrounds some kind of a political leader. I don't know if it's an emperor, maybe it is. His name is Xiao Bao, who falls asleep only to encounter a warrior in his dream. When asked who he is, the warrior replies, I am your doorkeeper. In the invisible world, I have already been performing this duty for many years. And upon this, Xiao Bao was immediately woken by actual guards who announced an actual visitor. And the dragon princess has come to ask Bao for military help in defending herself against a man she was betrothed to, but she didn't want to marry. And, you know, it came down to, came down to fighting. It came down to warfare. So Bao agrees to help. And the next day he sends 1,500 soldiers to aid her. And here's where it gets interesting. The next morning after waking, the story says while it was still dark, he again encountered the princess's advisor, who says, Yesterday you were kind enough to send soldiers to aid us in our distress, but they were all living men, and as such cannot fight against invisible spirits. Wow. So there's more to the story, but let's take a pause for a second. So the first thing you want to notice is that Bao has this, he's, he's sleeping, he has a dream, it's he, and he recognizes it as a, as a dream of this soldier who tells him that he's his guard in the invisible world. So acknowledging that there's some parallel world that runs alongside the actual world. And just like he has guards in the actual world, he has guards in the invisible world. And you can see how the myth makes that very plain. And Bao was like unaware entirely of this invisible world and didn't know he had guards there. But he responds to them. And the moment he wakes up into the real world, what the 
what the uh, warrior from his dream said would happen, that somebody was coming uh, to visit him, actually happens. And so you have this you have this weird blending of the dream world and the actual world. You know, the lady is announced in his dream, and then when he wakes up, there she is, you know. And so he sends her warriors to help. You know, he's a living emperor. He's got an army at his disposal. He's convinced by her and sends a living army. And then while he's, and then the next morning, right, he's just woken up, but it says that it's still dark. So you can imagine maybe he's in this twilight state where he's half asleep and half awake, like many of you are the first thing in the morning, you know? And in that state, which you might say is semi-conscious, you know, he's still tapped into his dream world, to the unconscious. He, he, he gets that, uh, you know, same advisor, that same uh, warrior who shows up and says, thanks for sending these soldiers, but they're not, they're not doing us any good. What we need you to help us fight are the invisible spirits. Okay. So you see the blending of this actual world and dream world again in the myth. He sent real soldiers to fight, you know, invisible ones. And they're like, this is no good. So you have to notice how the myth supposes an invisible world existing in parallel to the visible and how they interact, that they do interact. Bao sent living, material, conscious soldiers to fight an invisible, unconscious enemy. So there's bleed over in myth, and it seems that the visible or conscious and the invisible or unconscious worlds interact with one another. The unconscious spills into the conscious and vice versa. All right, so so again, the dream advisor is saying thanks for sending soldiers, but they're living and they can't they can't fight the, the invisible spirits. So the story continues like this. Bao then writes a command on a piece of paper and burned it in order to place his deceased soldiers at the princess's disposal. See, so it's like Bao doesn't miss a beat. He's like, oh, it's dead soldiers you need. So let me send you the spirits of our dead soldiers to help help in your battle. And you see the blending of the, of the unconscious and the conscious worlds. You know, the realm of the dead and the realm of the living, you know? Okay, it's also important to note, you know, like in ancient religions, there were sacrifices, and a lot of times they were burned sacrifices, and you might wonder about that. You know, if you're going to kill an animal and offer it to God, like, first of all, what the fuck is that about? And God's not going to eat that thing. And secondly, why are you burning it? You know, what are you, what are you trying to do? You know, clean up after yourself? No, they did that because they believed that the smoke would rise to heaven. And that's what it looks like it's doing when you burn something. And so you can send you can send something, you can transform something physical into something spiritual, like smoke. And you can send it up to heaven. You can send it up to the to the other realm, to the world that runs parallel to ours, the realm of the gods, right? And that's what Bao does. He writes a commandment on a piece of paper asking his dead soldiers to go help her and burns it to send the message to the land of the gods, to the land of the ancestors, right? That world that runs parallel to ours. And von Franz says that here in fairy tale form, we have a description that summarizes a range of motifs concerning the transition from the profane to the magical world. 
the magical realm is sometimes connected with a foreign place. And sometimes it is continually surrounded by people in invisible form and can be approached at any time. All right, so this idea of the magical realm, it's sometimes connected with a foreign place, like a really distant place, you know, like like uh, the land of the rising sun or something like that. That's how it'll, it'll appear in fairy tales. Maybe it's like the North Mountain or something. It's through the, through the infinite desert to the other side, to the promised land. It's always like that, some, some distant place. Um, then it says that it sometimes is, is con- um, continually surrounded by people in invisible form. And so you can think about that, like oftentimes in the Western Christian tradition, people imagine that they're surrounded at all times by angels, you know, guardian angels or spiritual forces. If you're like an animistic, you know, Native American type type believer or, or sub-Saharan African type of a tribal person, you believe that there's spirits surrounding you all the time. But we think about that like guardian angels or even the watchers that you, that you hear about from the, from the Bible and the apocryphal books that, that you know, there's always these sort of supernatural conscious presences watching everything that's going on, keeping tally of your sins and your, and your good deeds and that sort of thing. So we can understand this idea of imagining that we're constantly surrounded by invisible forms, you know? And the idea that they can be approached at any time, it reminds me really explicitly of British fairy tales and Irish fairy tales. I mean, actual fairy tales about fairies, you know? Um, because if you read those, those stories, you know, like if you pick up Grimm's fairy tales or something and you read them, what you're going to find is that the fairy world, you know, the magic world that, that runs alongside the, the actual world, it does blend over into our world. And so fairies come back and forth. They steal children, take them into the fairy world, that kind of thing. And the fairy world is always accessible, like from under a rock or from within a hillside or just beyond the dark forest, you know? And it's like that. Like you can fall into the into the magical world accidentally, you know? You might wander in and not even realize that that you're in this other other place. And there's an analogy there that that well, I mean, think about dreaming. When you're dreaming, you don't realize that you're dreaming. And it's almost like you just fell into this other reality from your waking reality and you know, it's, you're not even really conscious of the transition. You're just there, you know, just suddenly. And that's what happens in these fairy tales. So you can see the parallels there. And von Franz says, The nature of the magical realm shows itself through the states that befall whoever comes close to it. Exhaustion, sleepiness, and apparent death. So these are the types of symbols, these are the types of things that you'll see in dreams and myths and fairy tales when somebody is approaching the magical world, when somebody is approaching the unconscious, that those things are occasioned by falling asleep um, or dying. And it's really straightforward. It's like, where do we go when we're unconscious? Where do we go when we die? Where did our animating spirit go? Well, it went to the unconscious world, right? The world of myth and dream, the world of the gods. And von Franz brings up another fairy tale at this point, another Chinese fairy tale. 
She says it tells how a scholar experiences the underworld in a state of intoxication. It says a devil abducts him, and only later does he discover that he has died. So in the story, right, a, a demon abducts him and takes him, you know, on this on the spirit journey. And he's not even aware that he's dead. Just like you're not aware when you fall asleep and transition to your dream world. That's what's happening in this fairy tale. And there's, so there's a blending of the real and fantasy worlds. She goes on, she says, The enchanted world is experienced when the eyes are closed. A motif found also in many European fairy tales. In sleep, in a state of intoxication, or in unconsciousness. And which can slip into death. So there's that danger, you know, the danger of going um, on a magical quest, the danger of, um, you know, the types of things that happen to you in your dreams, but certainly the types of adventures that happen in myths and in fairy tales. There's always the risk that something bad would happen, to always the risk that you might die. And that's something you feel when you intentionally want to be or reach that unconscious state. There is a fear and people who understand mystic experience or psychedelic experience will know this. There's always a deep fear of, I want to I call it ego death, but I don't love the phrase. I would just say something like that. Um, slipping out of, of your identity and becoming one with the universe. That's this experience, and it's, it's desirable, and it is terrifying. Every single time, because it feels like everything you hold dear is slipping away, like your identity and yourself is slipping away. It feels like death, like something that you instinctively are, are drawn to protect yourself from, you know? So I think it's interesting that in this fairy tale, they specifically talk about intoxication being a pathway into that spirit world, into the land of the dead, into the unconscious, Again, because that that same sort of mystic experience that we're talking about is induced very often by psychoactive substances, um, you know, psychedelic drugs, for lack of a better word, among other things. But again, intoxication is a pathway, and what that's what we're seeing illustrated here. All right, she goes on. She says, it may occur to the reader that the incidents in the magical realm of fairy tales are fundamentally similar to dream experiences in that the enchanted world represents the unconscious. So that's, just, that's, that's the crux right there. The enchanted world of myth and fairy tales and of your dreams represents the unconscious. The idea of this world existing adjacent to our normal consciousness is evoked by the intuitive notion that our daily life is always accompanied by an unconscious stream of images that appear at night in our dreams. And that's real simple. It's you, 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 you live your day, you have your experiences, and then you lay down and you go to sleep, and the images that appear in your dreams very often are colored by those experiences. You know, maybe you're trying to work out a problem unconsciously, uh, maybe you're reliving a conversation you had, um, and your dream world just pieces this all together in this narrative that makes no sense, but you don't even notice it in your dream, you know? So there's always this unconscious stream of images that appear in your dreams 
as a reflection of the day that you just had when you were conscious. There's a connection there that's hard to, it's hard to brush off, you know? All right, then she says, the transition into the unconscious is sometimes portrayed in such a matter-of-fact way that it is as if there was no transition at all, as if the unconscious is the only reality. So I would say that the example of not really knowing when you transition from, well, not knowing when you, when you fall asleep, not knowing when you transition from waking reality to dreaming reality, it's something like that. But she says, an example is given in the Nordic fairy tale called the Mountain of the Golden Queen. So let me tell you that story here. So in, in the story, the hero, while sitting in the forest... Now remember, the dark forest is also a symbol of the unconscious, by the way. So that's where he's sitting. He sees a rat run and disappear into a juniper bush. When he follows it, he immediately falls asleep and dreams that he is going to find the mountain of the golden queen, but is unable to find the way. So he returns several times to the woods, locates the rat, and follows it into sleep. And each time encountering another obstacle in dream and having to return to the waking world for provisions. On one occasion, the queen puts a letter in his pocket while in the dream world. And when he awakes, he finds it actually in his pocket. So I find that, I find that interesting for lots of reasons. But you can see this continual back and forth. The hero keeps going from the conscious world into the unconscious world. He follows the rat into the bush and finds himself in this magic place, you know? So he, and he, and whatever these problems are that he's encountering in, in the dream world, he has to come back to the waking world to get what he needs to solve that problem. Then back into the dream world he goes. So there's this connection, there's this bleeding of the magical world and the, and the actual world. And, he, and this guy is going back and forth between them, no problem. And then the craziest part about it is, when he's awake and reaches into his pocket, he, he finds the letter that the dream queen put in his pocket. And I don't know if you're a 80s and 90s kid, you probably know this story, but it reminds me of the Nightmare on Elm Street, growing up watching horror movies and in one of those early movies, um, Nancy, I believe, I believe it's Nancy, the character, she grabs a hold of Freddy Krueger's hat, I think it is, and when she wakes up, she she's holding the hat, you know, and that's what's happened here. She reaches into her pocket, he reaches into his pocket, rather, and he finds that letter that only existed in his dream world. And so what, ha what you see here is the possibility that you can bring something from the magical dream world from the fantasy world back into the actual world. What might that mean? I think it means something like what Jordan Peterson will say when he when he talks about the hero's journey, and that's what these that's what these fairy tales are are, are tales of. You know, a heroic journey. Um, when Jordan will say, "Look, these are stories we tell about going into the unknown." Going, going to a place we've never been, taking a journey, going into the unknown, which is the unconscious, and finding there treasure, whatever it is that we need most. You know, there's potential there. There's nothing but potential there. 
So you never know what you what you can what benefit can be had by going there and bringing something back. <clears throat> and von Franz says, in this tale, the magical world announces itself to the hero through three dreams, which are linked to the appearance of a rat. And she says, rats like mice are animals that live in the dark underground and therefore embody unconscious animalistic impulses in humans. See, that may seem like a stretch, but it's not. It's one of these, this idea that we talked about in, uh, in the Neumann episode about, about meaning being elusive and about how uh, things that are unknown or maybe unknowable, like things from the unconscious, that we help ourselves to understand the things that really can't be understood by using a whole web of images. Our, our mind, our psyche produces images. Those images have associations to us. And one image isn't enough, but when you have lots and lots and lots of images, there's something that runs through all of those images. They're all different, right? But there's something that runs through them all that will help you to understand a little bit better what you're trying to describe. So when we're talking about the unconscious here, we talk about the dark forest, right? That's one of those images that surround the unconscious. But we also talk about rats and mice here. And they appear in the story, and you might think that's arbitrary. But it's not, because rats live, in, mice live in the dark forest. And even worse, underground, right? What, what is underground, mythologically? It's the land of the dead, right? The unconscious itself. The place where you're buried when you die, Right? The place where you return when you die. The womb of the earth, the deep cave underground. That's where the mice and rats live. So they're also symbolic of the unconscious. That brings me to my next section, which is called the moon. In this section, von Franz relates a fairy tale of the Eskimo from Baffin Islands. So this Eskimo tale is called flight to the moon. In it, a great shaman desires to visit the moon. To do so, he extinguishes all the lamps in his house, so he's in complete darkness, and he ties himself up so that he can't move. He then summons his Tornok. A Tornok is like his, his guardian spirit, but it's an animal spirit, like, like most Native American stories. They're animal spirits. And in this case, it's a bear, right? So he summons his bear guardian spirit, and the bear picks him up and carries him to the moon. There he encounters terrible, terrible beasts and magical obstacles, but he manages to evade them until he finally meets the man on the moon and his wife, as well as the lady of the sun. He receives gifts from the man on the moon and returns to his body on earth. So this is just a real simple summary of the myth. So this is what happens to him. So I think it's important to understand that when he turns the lights off in his, in his room and ties himself up, that there's symbolism there. So I don't want to put the cart before the horse, but let's read on. So von Franz says, Important in this tale is that the double description of that which happens partly in the normal human personage of the magician, that's the shaman, and at the same time in his other self, is complete. 
So his other self is the, is the well, maybe it's the Tornak. Maybe it's his bare spirit. Maybe it's the spirit part of himself that traveled to the moon because his body certainly didn't. So there's this idea of an other self that's brought into this story, a mirror self, something like that. She goes on, she says, the, in, the initi- initiation rites that primitives go through have an explicit symbolic meaning. Okay, well, yeah, no shit. Um, that's not true only of primitives. That's true of everybody. You know, r- rites always are symbolic. You can think about the Freemasons. They have a rite where they pretend to hang and bury you, and then they pull you up out of the grave. It's like you're being reborn. Yeah, that's symbolic, right? Or, you know, um, uh, ritual bathing, like the Jews or the Christians with baptism, you go down, you clean yourself, or a Muslim will do this too. You wash your hands and your feet and all that before you go pray. Why? Because you're making yourself ritually pure. It's all symbolic. Of course it's symbolic. But she points out that primitive people have initiation rites, rites of passage, right? Just like becoming an adult, becoming a man or a woman, and that those rites are symbolic. Then she says being tied up and shackled is the complete abdication of all outwardly directed activity. What does that mean? Well, in the story, the guy ties himself up before he can go to the moon. Why? Well, because he can't act. If he's tied up, he can't move, he can't act. Not in the outside world. What can he do if he's all tied up and he can't act in the outside world? Well, he can still act in the inner world. And that's what he has to do to get to the moon. He sinks down into the unconscious. He can't do anything outside. He's done that on purpose to put himself in a position where he sinks back into the unconscious. He surrenders to it, which is also a theme in mystic experience, surrendering. She goes on, extinguishing the lamps means a simultaneous extinguishing of normal consciousness. And calling animal spirits shows that the animalistic powers of the unconscious are activated. So again, he ties himself up so he has to go within. He turns the lights out so that he can conjure the unconscious, right? Because consciousness is, can, is always called a light, you know, the light of consciousness, the thing by which we see, the thing that's symbolized in the sun. You know, that's all, you know, chock full of symbolic meaning and myths. So he turns the lights off, right? Turns the consciousness off. And then the animal spirit, right, that shows up, the bear, she says that shows the animalistic powers of the unconscious are activated. Okay, so there's all sorts of stuff that I can say about animalistic powers. First thing that comes to mind, though, is this idea of of therianthropes that we've talked about. They appear in the most ancient art that human beings ever created, and they appear in all of our religious traditions, these half-animal, half-man beings. And that's kind of what you have here with the combination of the shaman and his spirit guide, right? It's a bear. You have a man and a bear that are connected to each other. And you can think about that, you know, with spirit guides and totem poles and things like that. Even clan identity in Native American and Sub-Saharan African tribes, you know, your family group is very often identified with a, an animal. And it's like your spirit animal. And also what comes to mind is when he says animalistic powers, it makes me think of those parts of our psyche and our brain that we inherited from our deep past. You know, you hear people talk about our, 
you know, our, like the reptilian part of our brain. It's the same. It functions exactly the same as, as the brain of reptiles. It's only part of our brain, not the whole thing, but it works very much like it. It's something that, that was bequeathed to us from evolution. You know, we brought it forward with us from the times when we were, when we were, uh, you know, let lower animals, you know, before we evolved into, into higher primates. So these animalistic parts of our brain are something like an inheritance from our deep past. And they allow us to do things that are instinctual, you know, like the parts of our bodies that breathes, you know, we don't have to remember to do it. We just do it. Or the part of our bodies that knows when to reproduce, you know, uh, we just have those instincts. And it's funny because those animal powers that are related to satisfying our instincts and keeping us alive, those are the very things that Carl Jung calls archetypes. Those are the very things that he says populates our unconscious. Those are the things that come to us in images that we paint up in, into stories and tell these fairy tales and myths about the contents of the unconscious. These are our animalistic powers. All right, she goes on. She says, From the remark that the shaman awakes exhausted, it becomes clear that this whole grand journey happened in his mind. It expresses a psychic experience, which was induced through sinking into unconsciousness. So that I agree with, but I also want to say, <clears throat> the fact that the shaman wakes up exhausted, and you, you may have experienced this before if you ever have a really intense mental experience. Maybe you're studying and taking a really long test. Maybe you took a big dose of MDMA or something. Any of these sorts of things where you're using your brain like a million miles an hour, it can, it can make you physically exhausted. You know, you're just, you're just physically exhausted afterwards. And it's interesting, but that's what happens to the shaman, right? He wakes up exhausted and you can see the connection between his psychic you know, adventure. His, his physical body wasn't going on, but when he wakes up, his physical body is tired. And you can see the connection between the unconscious thing, this, what he was doing unconsciously, and his body in, the, in, in, in consciousness, that there's a, still a connection there because he wakes up when his soul returns to his body and he's exhausted. You know, why would he be exhausted if his body wasn't connected to his soul in some, in some important way? Then she goes on, she says, The danger with these outings is very great because a dissociation of the personality occurs. So this is the idea of having two selves, you know, the self that's here, conscious, and the self that goes out into the unconscious world and has adventures, the self of your dreams, the self of your fantasies. Um, so that's the, dis the, the dissociation that occurs. It's like you have to cease being yourself in order to be this other person this other thing that can go out into the unconscious. And she says, one may not simply state that this is a separation of body and spirit. The individual houses different forms simultaneously and still keeps his or her identity. All right, so this is important. This is, this is the idea that even though we're talking about two selves, like the, in the story of the shaman with his bare spirit guide, um, in order to go into the unconscious realm, he has to become the spirit. He has to become the, the, the bear that, gets to, that can travel to the moon. You know, he can't, not in his physical body, but his, but his spirit self can. 
And so there's this out-of-body experience sort of image that comes to mind. And von Franz says, you have to be careful with that because there really is not a separation of body and spirit. They're really one thing. And this is a paradox, you know? How can the spirit and body be one thing if the spirit can leave the body and come back to it? And so body and spirit is, is really a union of opposites, like psyche and matter. And that's, that's the Ouroboros that we always talk about. That's that symbol at the very beginning of our, of our consciousness and at the very beginning of all of our myths. You know, the Ouroboros is the union of opposites, matter and spirit. And when he says that, that the individual houses different forms simultaneously, the, the, the physical body and the spirit, but keeps its own identity... I see that's I think it's true, but that's what I take beef with when it comes to um, the I, the phrase ego death. Because if you have a mystic experience or a psych, psychedelically induced mystic experience, you do you do experience an ego death. You do have that fear that you're dissolving and wasting away, and it does feel like death. But I always I always say it's not quite right. It's not it's not ego death so much as ego suppression. I mean I always feel like. The ego doesn't entirely go away, or the self doesn't entirely go away, because you still identify with this greater experience that you've become when you have a mystic experience. It's still you. And so the you never goes away. The you just starts to encompass lots more than you. And so you feel like what you are is everything and not just your body, you know? And I think that's what she's pointing to here, and that's what you see in the, in the fairy tales, exactly that. All right, she goes on, she says, From this it follows that great journeys, which comprise the main action in many fairy tales, basically mirror experiences of dissociation or dream states. She says, Primitive guardian spirit and doppelganger beliefs, for which the bear in our Inuit tale tells a beautiful example. Let me just stop for a second and explain doppelganger for those who don't know. Um, if you are a uh, 80s or 90s kid, maybe you grew up watching the Spider-Man cartoons, Doppelganger probably doesn't, doesn't, uh, does not a stretch for you to understand. Uh, but it means double personality in German. And, it, and it, it's, there's all kinds of interesting German fairy tales that have to do with doppelgangers. Like, you know, you got, you got swapped out for somebody who looks just like you, but it's not you. You know, the fairy took the real you and it replaced you with a, with a phony false version. And, you know, those sorts of crazy uh, fairy tales are told. But the idea of a doppelganger is broader than that. It's the idea of a double personality, that some, something exists in two ways at once. And they're, and they're alike and they're not alike at once. So... So von Franz is pointing out that guardian spirits, like what we're seeing in this in this Inuit or, or um, Eskimo story, are like these doppelgangers that you see in European German uh, fairy tales, and that the bear in the Inuit story is a good example of that other self. You know, the shaman and his bear spirit—they're the same. You know, one of them is a spiritual, has a spiritual existence, a magical existence in this in this other realm, and the other one is in the here and now. It's you. And von Franz says, here the guardian spirit plays the role of an alter ego, that doppelganger who mediates the whole experience. And this does not just coincidentally appear in the form of a bear. A bear was a sacred animal in all the northern lands, 
and over a large area was worshipped as a goddess. So you see the, the symbol that appears to the shaman as a bear. It doesn't appear as a bear for no reason. You know, the, the unconscious allows this image of a bear to show up because it has context for the shaman, because they already feel like bears are sacred and that perhaps they represent a goddess, you know? And that's, that's, again, where you see the symbolism um, crossing over into this mythological realm. And then we have another interesting example. She says, A clear example of this unconscious psychic factor in the human being is berserkism. All right, I don't know if you guys, if that would ring a bell, berserkism, but maybe the word berserker would ring a bell. That comes to us from, from Viking lore, from Viking mythology, and from Viking history, and the Scandinavian uh, tribes. They imagine that they could become, well, they called them berserkers. They could, they could, well... Let me just let me just finish reading this and then I'll and then I'll give you some more detail. I don't want to overlap. All right, so she talks about berserkism. She says it was imagined that certain heroes would leave their physical bodies. While his body had sunk into a deep sleep, the hero's soul was exchanged for that of a bear and performs enormous fighting deeds. Okay, so I'll stop there for just a second. So that's what a berserker was. In, in, in Viking lore, the soldiers would, would get ready for battle, and then there were certain soldiers that would somehow prepare for this exchange of their spirit with that of a bear. That was done through the use of psych psychoactive drugs. And you can see that in the, in, the, in the symbolism. You can see that in the art that's been left behind. They would take psychoactive drugs... They would find themselves in this frenzied state where they didn't fear death, where they didn't fear human beings, weapons, you know, being harmed. They would have no regard for their own life or safety. And as a result, you'd have all these juiced up, you know, crazy men with axes running at you, screaming and snarling and growling and slobbering and bleeding, and they would just fucking kill you. And it terrified a lot of the people that had to go up against them. So it served a good purpose, not just winning the battle, but putting the fear of God in your enemy. So this is what happened. And isn't that interesting that these northern people imagine that they were inviting the spirit of the bear into them, like their other self, their spirit self that would give them the spiritual power that comes from the land of the spirits to be brave and to fight and to kill and to survive and against all odds. That kind of thing. Then von Franz says this, she says, This state is similar to a Dionysian frenzy, which can also be experienced as a deep joy and release from the chains of the ego. So this is interesting because Dionysus, you know, this goes back to the ancient Greece, and she's relating this these berserkers to the followers of Dionysus, and Dionysus was known as the, as the god of intoxication, you know, the god of the vine, and people would get super drunk, and, and you know, this, that's why they call them spirits, by the way, and they'd drink alcohol, and the spirits would come into them, and possess them, and make them think and experience things differently, and that's how you feel when you're intoxicated, like you're, like the magic, like the magic world is 
bleeding into the actual world and things look and feel different and possibilities seem different and things are more funny and think, you know what I mean? That's what happens. And so she's relating this idea of, again, both of which are related to, to psychoactive substances. You know, the Dionysus rituals involved getting drunk and probably other things. And uh, the berserkers almost certainly were eating magic mushrooms and going into war. And both of those, again, are paths to mystic experience. All right, she goes on. She says, changing into an animal, dreaming, and succumbing to the enchanted world reflect basically one and the same thing, immersion into the unconscious. So I, I love this. I mean, dreaming, we've already talked about, but changing into animal form, whether it be a berserker, whether it be the bear, you know, turning into your spirit animal and traveling to the moon and that, that, and that Inuit myth, whatever it is, the idea of changing into an animal, that's something that, I mean, it goes so deep into our past. It's really at the very beginning of religious instincts in human beings. You can see these pictures. I have them hanging on my wall right now of different cave paintings of half animal, half human creatures. And there aren't many of them, but they're, but they're, they stand out. You know, um, the Birdman of Lascaux and the Sorcerer of Lascaux and, and um, uh, or excuse me, the Birdman is La Trois Frères is the name of the cave. And um, the the, uh, the mushroom uh, f- uh, shaman figure from Algeria and all, all these we've talked about many times. They're images of half human, half animal beings. There's also in fairy tales and in myths, all sorts of shape shifting you know, going on you know, with shamans and witches and things like that. And so changing into an animal is something that goes deep, deep into our, into our sort of symbolic and mythological past. You know, you can see it in things in Christianity like angels, you know, human beings with wings, right? And the goddess Nike from ancient Greece was the same. And the god Pan, you know, with cloven hooves and hairy legs and all of the gods of, of the Egyptian pantheon, um, you know, the, the eagle-headed god Horus and the, the lioness-headed god Sekhmet and on and on. You've got these images like sphinxes, you know, that appear in Egypt and Mesopotamia. And, um, you know, all of them, all of them are showing you the same thing that we've been, the story that we've been telling ourselves since the beginning of time, that there's something like, there's something like a merger of the spiritual or psychic worlds and the physical one. There's something that you might, that you might, symbolize as a half-human, half-animal creature. It's partly real and partly fantasy, and that's how our experience is. That's how a human experience is like. And all of those things, she says, represents immersion into the unconscious. All right, she goes on. She says... A state of intoxication can also lead to one's being transported into the beyond a kind of ecstatic rapture. A particularly beautiful portrayal is the Chinese tale, The Lady of the Moon, which opens like this. One night, an emperor of the Tang dynasty sat with two sorcerers drinking wine. One of them took his staff and cast it into the air, where it transformed into a heavenly bridge. The three climbed up to the moon together. All right, I'm going to stop there for a second. I want to point out 
that the emperor and these two sorcerers were drinking wine. So you can see, obviously, the intoxication component that's being used to tie them over into the unconscious. This is the bridge, right, that takes them from the, from the regular world to the fantasy world. And it says, one of the sorcerers took his staff and cast it into the air. Well, the air is the heavens, you know, up. That's where we look when we look to the heavens. That's where we imagine, uh, that's where the, star, the stars are, right? That's where we imagine that, that the, um, the, the, the realm of the gods is. And what happens? The this, this staff transforms into a heavenly bridge. And there are so many instances of this. Something that connects heaven and earth. In the Bible, in the Old Testament, it's a story that you might remember, Jacob's Ladder, where Jacob goes to sleep on the rock. And when, he, when he's dreaming, he sees a ladder coming down from heaven and the angels going up and down from heaven to earth. This is what's happened. The heavenly bridge, it's sometimes called the rainbow bridge. And it connects heaven to earth. It allows powers from the unconscious to come into the conscious and back and forth. It's also called the axis mundi or the world tree. You know, it's the pole that goes right through the middle of the uh, of the world that connects it to the other other worlds. You know. All right. So as the story goes on, they see uncanny things, and they describe the whole moon world seemed to be made of glass. So I, th- I think of that like semi-transparent. You know, they get to the moon and things seem partly see-through. You know. And so that's, to me, it's an illusion that they're, they're partly see-through, which means that they're partly real. You know, they're semi-real. They're somewhere in between. When at last they finally encounter the Lady of the Moon, she says, You are a prince of the mundane world of dust. You must have good fortune that you were able to find your way here. So he is known, the emperor, he's known right away as not belonging, as being of the mundane world which implies that they're in a special, higher spiritual world. And the good fortune of getting there turns out to be songs that he heard played on the moon, which he wrote down and he brings back with him into consciousness. And the mystic, supernatural songs represent the treasure, you know, the valuable thing that can be gained from encounter with the unknown, from the source of being, the unconscious. And it's the same story. Jordan Peterson will be the first to tell you. It's the same story that we read about the hero fighting the dragon. You know, you go down into the cave, you slay the terrible, you know, beast against impossible odds, and you gain something. Maybe you recover the virgin, or maybe you recover a great treasure or, or a great secret. And that's what we tell in our myths all the time. That you can go into the unknown. You can go into the unconscious. You can take a big risk, the risk of death and dissolving of your ego. And if you do that, you can be the hero. You can find something valuable there in the unconscious. You might wonder about that. Um, Why would there be valuable things in the unconscious? And I I can refer you back to the Neumann episode about the Ouroboros. I think that's probably the way to do it. But, um, But the unconscious is something like potentiality. It's the place or the substance that allows new things to come into being. The something from nothing. The unconscious is that. It's potentiality. It's something like God, really, in the, the, way, that, well, the way that I conceptualize it. 
So of course, potential. If you go into potential, you have the opportunity to bring something out that's valuable. It's really as simple as that. The unconscious is something like potential. And if you go there, you never know what can become. So Von Franz says, in this tale, the hero is accompanied by two sorcerers, similar to the Eskimo shaman and his guardian spirit. Like the guardian spirit, the sorcerers are in a certain sense parts of the hero himself. They represent parts of him that have the inclination to make contact with the magical world. The unconscious is here again personified as the lunar realm, as the light that shines in the night. Okay, so let's stop. Let's pump the brakes for just a second. So this idea that in the story, the emperor and his, his two sorcerers, they all really just represent parts of the emperor himself. That shouldn't that shouldn't surprise you too much because we we've seen that before um we saw it when we talked about plato you know even just talking about how plato wrote his dialogues every character in the dialogue represents a different you know human tendency or human or personality type or inevitability you know the way that a human being might take an argument or um, the ideas that might come to one person versus another based upon their personality, every one of the characters in a platonic dialogue represents something like that. Like they're all a bunch of, a bunch of versions of you, you know, a bunch of versions of Plato. And he puts them out there like that so that you can see that. And I think that's similar to what we're seeing here, that the images in the story, the shaman or the, um, uh, the emperor and these two sorcerers, um, they, they represent... They all represent parts of the emperor himself. And the sorcerer, you can imagine, that's the magical part. That's the part that knows magic. That's the part that knows mystery, that is in touch with it and can use it and can, you know what I mean? That's the part of yourself that she, that von Franz says, um, he, she says it represents the part of him that has the inclination to make contact with the magical world. The part of you that wants to make contact with the, with your own unconscious. The part of you that asks difficult questions like, what does it all mean? What's the meaning of life? How did we get here? How did the cosmos get here? The part of you that's curious about the unconscious, the unanswerable questions. And then she says something interesting about symbolism, because we've been talking about the moon this whole time. She says the unconscious is here again personified as the lunar realm. Remember, the unconscious is often depicted as a far-off land. That's where the magical land is. It's on the other side of the rainbow. You know, it's on another planet. It's in another dimension. It's something like that. And the moon is like that. It's like a far distant place that you can never reach, but you, but you know is there. Sort of. And she also describes the moon being the light that shines in the night. Right? So the night is the unconscious, the dark place where there is no consciousness, right? The light is consciousness itself. Consciousness is very often the light, fire, the sun, the thing by which we see um, symbolically. So the moon is the light that shines in the darkness. That means consciousness that swims in an ocean of unconsciousness. That's where consciousness comes from, by the way, the potential of the unconscious. And then she says something interesting. She says, the moon also signifies madness. And then she, then she references the word lunacy. 
And it made the hair stand up on my arms because I never realized that connection before. So you might wonder about madness, but we've been talking about intoxication as a means to, to enter the unconscious realm. And madness is something like intoxication. Carl Jung called it divine madness. And we use the word lunacy to mean crazy. And of course, lunacy comes from the word lunar, which means the moon. <laughs> Amazing. Amazing. All right, and then she says, the smoothness, solidity, and transparency of glass correspond to the invisible and yet very present but intangible character of the magical world. It's exactly right, exactly what I thought, that when, when the emperor gets to the moon with his sorcerers and sees that everything there seems to be made of glass, like it's partly translucent, it's symbolic of it being not quite real. It exists, but it's not physically real. And that, my friends, is spirit. That's what we know as spirit. Or psyche. And that brings me to my conclusion, which goes like this. Your inner world, the world of your dreams and fantasies, is the unconscious. It is the place where we exist partially, obliquely, without being quite aware of it. It is the unknown part of ourselves, the place where our interests come from, where our creativity comes from. It is the place where our consciousness comes from and the place to which we all return at the end of our lives. It is the beginning and the end, as the Bible says, but it is also the underworld, the land of the gods, heaven and Valhalla. It is also Shangri-La, the spirit realm, and the abyss. A little closer to home, it is also Narnia, Oz, and the upside down. It is the aboriginal dream time, limbo, hell, and purgatory. It is Middle Earth, Krypton, and the wizarding world. The unconscious is the mirror world, the hidden realm behind the conscious one the place that bleeds through the veil, saturating conscious experience with meaning, with mystery, and with magic. It is far more than our imagination, although it is that too. It is a way for us to understand the unknowable within ourselves and within the cosmos. We tell stories about this reality because we are desperately trying to understand what, what cannot be rationally understood. As, as Jung said, we can do it. We can do the impossible and make sense of the absurd. We do so in images. By opening ourselves up to the unconscious, like a receiver, and allowing images to flow into our awareness. These images we find in, in dreams, myths, and fairy tales. And the stories they tell inform us of the deepest meaning there is. They tell us, that we are more than we seem, that there is true magic in the world, and that we are capable of impossible feats. They tell us that we are heroes and can be heroes again, even against the most terrible odds. They remind us perennially that we are a mystery locked in an enigma and that our potential surpasses any obstacle. 
Not rationality nor logic, not space or time, not the laws of physics are sufficient to explain away or to subdue the thing that we are. What would you call such a thing as this? God, perhaps? Hmm. Do we tell stories of man becoming God or God-man? Wouldn't that be an indication that there's something to it? I'll leave that for you to decide. Until we meet again. Well, there you have it. That's one avenue explored, but infinitely more still to go. I hope you enjoyed thinking along with us. I know, I know. It's not easy work. Thinking. It's hard and full of uncertainties, but I'm grateful for the company as we trek through this together. Here's to hoping that the juice is worth the squeeze. See what I did there? Let's find out together in the next episode.